0: Future of Finance
1: Podcast,
0: where finance finds its future.
1: Hello everybody, I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. Welcome to our webinar. CBDC is a poised to administer the coup de grace to the payments business of the banks, or has reform of cross-border payments lost its mojo? Whether CBDC is the answer, and probably not, at least in the short term, it's certainly worth asking whether central banks and other regulators are losing patience with the relatively slow progress on making cross-border payments cheaper, faster, and more transparent for everyone. And I say everyone because clearly the current system is working well enough for some people, particularly those in developed markets exchanging value in the top uh, few reserve currencies. It's poorer people, people paying remittances, for example, Uh, and dealing in smaller currencies, which are paying the price of inefficiency. Making cross-border payments faster, cheaper and more transparent for them has support at the highest political level. Indeed, it's a G20 priority. And rightly not just for poorer people either. Efficient payment is good for all of us because it is vital to continuing growth in world trade, particularly as more and more trade moves online. Yet progress does seem to be getting bogged down. When we last visited this topic in September 2021 in a webinar entitled It's Time to Fix Cross-Border Payments, the 19 building blocks laid down by the CPMI for making cross-border payments faster, cheaper and more transparent were already more than a year old. They were published first in July 2020. Now they're almost two years old. The latest FSB review of progress I could find that was published in October last year against those 19 building blocks. I counted eight surveys, two reviews, two hackathons, one workshop, one proof of concept, one cost-benefit analysis, one promise of technical advice, one deadline extension, and one shrug of the shoulders. That was on CBDCs. We have these four quantitative targets to settle cross-border payments faster, cheaper, and more transparently, and all they do really is restate the goals of the programme in the first place. So what's going on? Why is it so hard to solve this problem? To help us understand the issues, we're joined by Daniel Eden, an advisor and solution architect at the Bank for International Settlements Innovation Hub. Which he joined from R3 and where he builds technology for central banks with a special focus on blockchain and CBDC. Angus Fletcher is Chief Executive Officer of Finality UK, the first local jurisdiction in which an online blockchain payment owned by 15 global banks is going live. Long-term aim is to establish a global network of distributed payment systems capable of settling the cash leg of tokenized transactions. Anka Sharma is a product manager in payments at BCB Group, a leading crypto business, banking partner, and provider of payments and trading services for the digital asset economy. Gottfried Liebrandt is a payments expert, former CEO of SWIFT, an alumnus of McKinsey, and author uh, with Natasha Dutrade of this excellent book, which I urge everybody uh, listening to read, The Payoff, How Changing the Way We Pay Changes Everything. Now, in addition to our panellists, we do of course also have you, our audience. We want your questions, we want your comments, so send them, keep sending them uh, via the Q&A functionality at the bottom of your Zoom screens. Uh, As always, rest assured, I won't be saving those up to the end, but we'll address them as we go along so you can be an integral part of the discussion right from the start. And I speak for all of us when I say we're gonna be very disappointed if we don't get uh, lots of questions and comments from you. I'd like to begin by asking Daniel, if I'm being unfair, in saying that things are proceeding too slowly. After two years, as I said, the only concrete progress we really have to show is these four quantitative targets for 2027, which is itself uh, five years from now. One of them is speed, 75% of payments, we settle settled within an hour, which doesn't, to me, sound particularly demanding. I don't know whether the data exists, but I'd be surprised if particularly in the major currency pairs, we're not at 75% or more already. Secondly, cost. Uh, the global average cost of retail payments is to be no more than one percent, uh, and the global average cost of sending a two hundred dollar remittance to be no more than three uh, percent, which again is uh, a measure of how far we have to go. Perhaps, thirdly, access: uh, the financial institutions and end users are to have at least one option uh, for sending and receiving cross-border payments. More than ninety percent of individuals who wish to send or receive a remittance payment are meant to have access. Uh, to a means of cross-border electronic remittance payments. Finally, uh, transparency, all payment service providers are to give a minimum defined list of information to payers and payees, things like uh, the total transaction costs and how long it will take to deliver the funds, which will, uh, intention at least uh, by 2027, will have a kind of floor of transparency right across the global marketplace. So Daniel, my question to you is, um, is a kind of two-parter really. One is am I being unfair by saying that progress uh, on the 19 building blocks has been too slow? And secondly, as I look at these four quantitative targets, um, does the data actually exist? How are we actually going to measure performance against those four quantitative targets?
0: Okay, that's a, that's a great opener, and I'll do my best. Um, I'll, I'll do my best to give some insights. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, thanks for having me. It's a wonderful to be uh, being here. It's
1: great to present
0: present with such esteemed panelists. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I always need to remind myself to say that the views I represent are mine alone and not necessarily the views of the BIS. So now that I have that out of the way, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to. I mean, so so to, to, there's two questions: Is progress too slow? Is that a fair statement? And and you know, what's the quality? Are these the right targets? And what's the quality and the measurability of the targets? Um, You know, being part of the BIS Innovation Hub, I would say that progress is slower than I would like, but that doesn't mean that progress uh, isn't being made um, all the time. You opened the panel with saying that, you know, it seems like, you know, the G20 roadmap with the 19 building blocks came out almost two years ago. uh, And it seems as if progress has been slowed down. I think I would make an analogy um, to kind of last mile challenges. So, you know, when you're, when you're writing a paper, you get to 80%, you make progress between zero and 80 pretty quickly. And then it's that last 20% that seems to kind of take forever. I think as we mature, a lot of the, a lot of the technology around this, and we get closer to the finish line, it's exactly the same. The finish line almost seems to get, be getting farther and farther away. And the reason is um, we're asking more nuanced questions Um, things get added to the scope that maybe weren't added before. And it's it's a moving target. And the industry around us is is also moving. I mean, uh, if we look at the swings in the value proposition that crypto brings, uh, for example, having this conversation right now versus having this conversation a couple months ago uh, may have uh, maybe changed the views of uh, of our fellow panelists here uh, quite substantially. So with a moving landscape and a moving target, uh, I don't think it's unfair to say that things aren't moving fast enough, but that doesn't mean that things aren't uh, aren't moving uh, relatively quickly. Um, so I think we are making very, very good progress. I think some of the challenges in particular with cross-border payments is that to a certain degree, they are predicated on advancing national payment schemes, right? So if you want to start talking about cross-border payments, the general notion is that, well, we need to advance our own domestic payment schemes with um, with an eye towards connecting connecting them together in some form, either as a single platform or as a hub and spoke. And there's many, many, many different models. But you get this kind of uneven and asymmetric tapestry of different uh, jurisdictions. Um, and that causes a, a very different advance in, in pace. So the question really is, how quickly do you move along? And, and you've already mentioned that, you know, maybe in some, uh, in some economies, the problem is, for all, for all means and purposes in certain currency pairs in some regions, already there, right? Um, as for the targets, I mean, I, I think the, the targets of speed, cost, access, and transparency are the right things to talk about. I think with the quantifiability and measurability of those targets, I think it's going to be incredibly, incredibly hard. Um, but any target is better than no target. And until we can produce a more nuanced um, um more nuanced measurable metrics I think that these serve us well in uh, in uh, moving towards the general direction. Um, so that I'll, I'll, I'll stop there.
1: Gottfried, uh, you've you listened to what, what Daniel said. It reminds us all that actually cross-border payments are an amazingly complex multi-layered uh, industry and we've got, I don't know, 190, 200 jurisdictions on earth all with their own domestic uh, problems, problems to solve. So what is your reaction to these to these four quantitative targets? Are they just simply too crude? Uh, would it be better to have a, a wider range of targets aimed at different um, payment channels, if you like?
2: Yes. So, uh, thank, thanks again for uh, for having me. I, I somehow sense that I'm the token dinosaur on this discussion, so I'll, I'll happily fulfil that role. <laughs> uh, um, do the, uh, they work for Swift anymore? Might, There's no might. need to
1: describe yourself as a dinosaur. That,
2: that, that's, <laughs> not, that's not what I was referring to. No, no, this is, <laughs> this is, this is the, the whole notion of an expert. Um, the, um, uh, I, I would say though that the landscape is complex. Um, and, and one of the, uh, I think, concerns I have for the approach of, of uh, the whole roadmap is that it does take it, it takes a cross-border payment as a cross-border payment. And I think it, it would be fruitful to, le- to at least segment the landscape uh, because it, it's comprised of a whole set of different types of flows that have their own challenges. And I would segment it at least along two dimensions. I would distinguish um, um, sort of wholesale versus retail, if you want. Um, and and there are much finer distinctions. And you have the high liquidity, the multi-billion dollar flows, and, and all the way at the other end, you have worker remittances that are maybe $200, the, the one that the, the, the targets uh, talk about. Um, the other dimension, I think, would be by corridor cross-border has always been about currency corridors, and there you should at least distinguish mature to mature or big big currency to big currency from, from the other ones, um, so, so I, I think it's fruitful to break that up. I, I think the focus of, of the um, FSB and, and thereby the, uh, the CPMI has been very much on worker remittances, i.e. smaller fro- flows and especially those between mature currencies and, and emerging markets. Um, and I think they are, they are almost an issue in themselves. The solutions that you have for those are not necessarily the ones you have for others. So to take them off, I, I think the problem of timeliness, for example, in the large flows between reserve currencies, as you mentioned, I think GPI solved a big part of that. Um, uh, m- many of those flows are now done. I, I would be surprised if the 75% target is not being met already. Um, I think most of those are done within an hour, uh, especially if you weigh them by, uh, by size of payment and by, uh, by, uh, by currency pair. Um, so there's a, there are, sure are challenges there, things like RTGS opening times, and we can get into that. Uh, but the challenges are from a different nature than uh, for, the, uh, for the smaller ones. Uh, another example, like RTGS opening times would be a good one. Um, that problem you can solve in different ways. I think for the smaller currencies, the smaller amounts, I should say, the solution that has been found in Australia with uh, and in the UK with faster payments, where you take essentially a subset of the, the RTGS that you keep it open overnight for smaller amounts with collateral posted before the weekends, etc., that seems to work. Of course, that only works for smaller payments. It won't work for large liquidity flows. Um, so again, I, I think there segmenting the market really adds to the discussions, and, and the solutions you come up with may also uh, may, may also be different uh, depending on what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So that would sort of be my.
1: Thanks, thanks, Scott. For anyone who doesn't know uh, GPI is the is the transaction management platform offered by by SWIFT, which uh, enables those high-value cross-border payments to be managed actively during the during the day to speed them up, cut the cost, etc. Um, Angus, perhaps I come to you next. Um, one of the uh, um, requirements for meeting these targets is, of course, that that central bank RTGS systems uh, have to change uh, and perhaps become open to more uh, a wider range of participants. Now, that's a, a subject which I'm sure is 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 close to your heart as a non bank looking to access an RTGS um, system. Am I right to think there's very little chance of a sufficient number of of central banks actually adapting their their RTGS systems to to make achieving these targets possible within five years. From my again, being too cynical and unfair?
3: Um,
1: Maybe there's better solutions, you know, easier. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. So, so the way I would put it is that, you know, each of the central banks are very much looking at, uh, and in particular, if you look at Bank of England, if you look at um, ECB, you know, they're looking at how to upgrade their RTGS systems as we speak. Uh, they have significant programs associated, Uh, You know, they're looking at different ways of how within that um, the different sort of standards. So roll out of ISO 20022, they're looking at different ways of connection. So uh, if you if you look at um, the RTGS renewal program in the the UK, um, there's a whole set of work around API connectivity, for example. So a different way of connecting in. I think the challenge for ours is. That you know, there, there is a start of a day and, a, and an end of a day um, concept that exists within uh, you know within each jurisdiction, understandably, um, and that does create restrictions um, around, uh, in particular, when there is restricted access as well uh, into each of those RTGSs who can uh, access or not, um, and that creates restrictions on a cross border basis as to when. Um, settlement can and can't happen. Um, we, you know, the interesting thing is again, if you look at uh, what has happened in the UK with the announcement of their of the Bank of England omnibus uh, account policy, um, is to create an account that effectively allows an ancillary payment system to connect in, and as long as you pre-fund that account you can effectively operate a payment system off the back of that RTGS system on a 365, um, you know, 24-7 basis. Um, that obviously requires the funds in the account to be able to do that, um, but it creates a, uh, a a new way of being able to, uh, to operate uh, outside of those RTGS hours. I think when you then connect another... Uh, uh, another payment system in a, in a location that connects into another uh, central bank in a similar way, like you can already in, uh, in Europe, for example, uh, you can then really operate on a cross border basis. And I'm talking high value here, cross border basis uh, outside of those RTGS hours. So creating a separate, a different solution. I was also going to pick up on the, the, the sort of four points here. One of the other, and, and what Fried said around. You know, you have to differentiate different types of payments. Um, there is also an element of what is the payment being made for? i.e., you know, what's the, is it to support a settlement of a new type of asset, for example, and a new type of market uh, that operates on a, um, you know, on a different time frame, time zone uh, potentially, as again, three six five twenty four seven. In order to be able to provide support in that uh, for the settlement, you need to be able to, uh, you know, have systems that can can offer that. Um, and I think, therefore, the industry is going to drive a big degree of a direction around the types of solutions to be able to facilitate that too.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. um you. You've you've heard what what Angus had to say there. Um, I've interested in your views on non-bank access to to RTGS systems but I'm also interested in what you think about this question of um, of RTGS systems having to change simple things like extending their opening hours for example uh, but also changing their technical standards what my question really is is it's is not just central banks that have to change here if that happens private banks have to change as well so what are your thoughts, say on, on non-bank access to RTGS systems? And secondly, how confident can we be that the private sector banks are going to be enthusiastic um, okay. about meeting these targets by
4: changing their systems to work with RTGS systems, which have themselves changed? Sure. So I think I think let me just first answer the part around the RTGS extension, uh, extending times and stuff like that. Um, but before I answer that, I just, just wanted to kind of uh, piggyback on Angus's question, right? Um, RTGS access and extending that would probably be useful because there is there is as we said there are there are certain new markets that are coming up which need that flow and that liquidity and that access to those settlement across 24/7 365. Now uh, the industry, as Angus said, the industry is already evolving, and I think the private sector is actually, in my view, is lurging ahead in, in rather than the central banks and the RTGS system by creating these networks, fragmenting networks across different geographies for example in bcb we have our own payment network that runs 24 7 365 uh, which is called as bling and we allow that uh, people to you know counterparties to settle uh, across um, uh, across uh, the weekend as well and then within different geographies across the globe there are these networks that are sp- spinning up i don't think so the private industry or the private sector is going to wait for that long for the RTGS system. Obviously, RTGS extension and RTGS opening time being expanded will be useful, but I think there is already a parallel process wherein the private sector is getting up and kind of uh, probably, I wouldn't say, lurging ahead, but almost going side-by-side side trying to resolve this issue because they can't wait for the, you know, so many different 190 or uh, different authorities to kind of come together and establish this. So I think that's one thing. Um, on your point around private banks, I think the, the issue with private banks is the non-banking institutions, when, when you compare it to private banks, their focus is they are very much, I feel they're very much uh, aligned to a certain uh, uh, kind of a notion or kind of, kind of a principle to say they are payment focused or they want to expand into new geographies or they, want, they don't have this whole burden of regulatory frameworks and the kind of challenges that they fake, the microeconomics and the microeconomics challenges that the banks are facing. And in terms of extending the RTGS or making cross-border, I feel personally, it's not at the higher, uh, at the priority level that it should be, but that's that's my view. So I think RTGS will probably get expanded. The RTGS opening times and RTGS functionality will get more and more better. But I think private players and especially the non-banking will probably, probably go ahead and, and will establish
1: a parallel network. Mm-hmm. Thanks, I've an interesting question here from John Folk at Bors Consult. And I think it's one really for you to address first, Gottfried, it's given all the flows and channels possible. Are there too many options a bank has to consider over their current offerings? Is it a case of watch and wait until a consensus solution appears? In other words, is there just too much choice and too much complexity here uh, we were talking to one of our supporters at, um, at Future of Finance, who was trying to put together a directory of various uh, technologies and payment systems around the world, and I think he would reached a total of twenty thousand different technologies, techniques, methods which you could use. So it, it is a very complex and highly fragmented area. But is is, are, is John's question? Is are the banks getting horribly confused here? We giving too much, too much choice. Is that fair?
2: Mm, yeah i I don't know i mean to be honest that's why we have a market to sort that out right i i I would say uh, having too much choice is an easier problem to solve than having not enough choice uh, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day um so there i would say we are the payment landscape is going through faster change than at least i've ever seen before um so we're in a stage where lots of people are inventing things so you would expect and you would hope that that there are like it can be an explosion of, uh, of species and you have all these options, and I think it is the task of players like markets and others to uh, to sort that out. And I trust they are able. Uh, I trust they are able to do that at the end of the day. And we'll, we'll see what floats and uh, what answers to the needs. Um, Uh, Having said that, it is a complex landscape and it is precisely, I mean, I've always learned that the best way to fight complexity is with other complexity. Um, So it may take very different solutions to solve what is inherently a complex problem with all these different flows for different purposes going going on. Mm -hmm. But it's good also, to hear from John Falk again, by the way, I
1: should yeah, say. Yeah, banks still have to make choices. They have to spend their money on something. They could spend it on, you know, matching technical standards with RTGS systems or, or something else. So I mean, the market may not work as efficiently as we'd like, as quickly as we'd like, but that's a whole different um, discussion. Um,
3: right, Dominic, Dom, can I just follow yes. on from Hudfried there? I mean, I totally agree with his points, which is, you know the market will decide what succeeds and what fails. Ultimately, um, there are obviously certain rails that they uh, that that can and can't be used. Um, but the the reality is is there is so much invest you know only so much investment to go around. Um, you know if it, it's going to really decide on 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 who puts the funds in to keep these things going, and a whole host of them are going to fall by the wayside. Um, so I think it's a, uh, yeah, it will be market factors that change things. But I, I'd also agree that what's important is to see lots of different models and see which ones will play out. Um, and, and there are learnings that can be taken from, you know, all of the different types of models, different proof of concepts that are being uh, looked at. And, uh, and that can then, I think, build into the ones that are ultimately going to survive.
1: One of one of the drivers here, Angus, but before you go, at a thought is going to be the cost of of liquidity. Uh, you know, you it's one of the it's one of the nineteen buffers here is is trying to arrive at reciprocal um, liquidity arrangements or building liquidity bridges. Because at the moment you've got banks who are parking uh, possibly trillions of, of of dollars of excess liquidity in markets all over the world just to make sure that they can meet their settlement um, obligations, and that's a, obviously that that has capital costs as well as. Um, interest costs, which can only get higher as as interest rates um, mm. go up, and um, you know we've got HQLAX uh, trying to to address this question by using uh, by tokenizing different forms of of collateral. Is that a model which the payments industry could adopt? Tokenization I mean, of of you know so stuff lying I mean, around, cash collateral lying around.
3: Well, I think it, uh, you know, again, there are potentially different models that, that tie in there. Um, I, I don't want to sit and plug uh, our solution, but, you know, I'm going to. I have uh, one I was bowling an
1: underarm ball here.
3: Exactly. In, in essence, you know, the, the whole one of the key benefits um, that around the Finality solution is um, the ability to set up peer to peer networks in each market. Um, which then interoperate on effectively the same technology um, with another, you know, with each of the other peer-to-peer networks. Um, key is is obviously the access in terms of those players are will uh, need to have access to, to each of the different payment systems in each of those locations. Um, but what by setting that up, you take out a number of the intermediary flows so that you don't actually have to park. Uh, funds with multiple correspondents um, on a cross-border basis. The second thing is, by the technology allows a near-instant settlement. So again, you can basically you have far more freedom um, and options to be able to move funds uh, both intraday, overnight, and uh, and again outside of normal uh, working working hours. Um, and that that's going to be well, it, it's something that all of the consortium members uh within the finality uh initiative are have have invested in for that very reason that it it gives uh, it, it's going to be one of the key drivers around uh, around the uh changing of their um or allowing them greater options within their liquidity model
4: think mm-hmm. just to add on that uh dominic if you don't mind um mm-hmm. i think i think i kind of agree with angus and um, although I don't want to, but I have to probably talk about uh, our network as because because Blink kind of offers the same sort of uh, facility, wherein if you are part of the network, it not only allows you to kind of uh, you know do transactions across counterparty, so A, it re- reduces the risk that you know kind of exists with counterparties because you are having an instant payment uh, system, you're getting uh, payments instantly. it also um, going back to those four pillars it it reduces the cost because uh, we offer it for free for, for, for that matter. so no, no matter how big the transaction is, which currency you're trying to do uh, uh, whether you're using a USD or a euro, it doesn't matter because we you know you, as long as you are on the network you can move across funds uh, instantaneously. And also, it probably go, give, uh, talks about the access uh, aspect of it as well, because right now, as I said, it's it's limited to what, what BCB can offer, but then it's not going to sit there. We are looking at it as an, as, as an atomic network, something similar to what Angus is saying, and that atomic network is self-sustaining. So tomorrow, we can see that network joining up across different other networks that are coming up uh, by different geographies in the US, in Asia-Pac, in Middle East, and then that becoming like a big, big network in itself, wherein cross-border payments we could be probably looking at within seconds um and it could be as as low as a one pound and that could uh, it could be as big as a, as a million pound moving across across the globe
1: thanks i now um we're gonna have to talk about correspondent banking and and indeed cbdc's in a minute before we do i'd just like daniel to just get your thoughts on some of these other um building blocks i i, I pick some out because they strike me as particularly um intractable one of them is this is this need for consistent customer due diligence. In other words, the KYC, AML, CFT sanctioned screening checks, uh, which are a you know, pretty well-recognized obstacle to efficiency in, in transactions. And the, the FSB paper talks about setting up data sharing utilities. We have some of these in existence already. And Swift has one, for example. Um, but there's no mention there of, of digital identities, um, even though the G20 and the FATF themselves have actually endorsed the idea of G20. And I thought that would massively accelerate the efficiency of, of running those checks. So I've been in your thoughts on that. Secondly, the second one of these um, uh, building blocks is the adoption of, of ISO 20022, uh, which is in principle, a very good idea, but it's an incredibly long running saga uh, with multiple versions of it, very patchy adoptions of it, uh, even by the payments industry itself, which is ostensibly undergoing a kind of compulsory uh, move to it. Nobody really expects the entire industry to, to adopt it. And I, I wonder what, whether you think that that this project, the engagement of the FSB and the G20, can actually change attitudes towards, uh, I say, 2082, particularly in the light of the experience we've had with LEIs, which had full high-level political support but have failed to achieve um, universal adoption. Uh, you know, in fact, it's one of the it's another one of the the things here. So, what's your thought about uh, about the customer due diligence building block? What's your thought about? Um, the chances of of ISO twenty eighty two adoption accelerating.
0: Um, so the customer due diligence aspect is 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 really a good one. I mean, if you think about today, wh- where the onus lies for implementation and what's the recourse uh, if if anything goes wrong, I mean, it really is all all on the commercial banks, right? So I think it's really interesting from a central banking perspective to understand um, how to promote. Um, global stability payment systems that are harmonized cross border but at the same time understand who are the real experts at implementing KYC AML and CFT regulations uh, and how do we understand the pain points and the use cases there and uh, advance on them the, the, the fragmentation that we see with the implementation there is significant and i think that it's it's going to be a constant challenge you know your point that you make on digital id is probably one of the one of the reasons that retail cross border payments are moving much slower than wholesale cross-border payments uh, because you don't have to uh, tackle that problem head on. Uh, and it, this is one of the last mile um, kind of components that, that I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation is that once once you get past the technical feasibility and you think about the user viability, you bump mm-hmm. into these things very, very quickly. Um, so you know, data sharing techniques, like you mentioned, are, are um, an option. Can you align the incentives of all the players um, to adopt these kind of techniques uh, and and maybe share some of the some of the some of the requirements around these. I mean it, it, that's going to be an ongoing uh, challenge a, of aligning incentives across different jurisdictions. Um, you, you know it, it's nice that, it's nice that we kind of position these things as very binary, right? You have you know traditional you know traditional payment infrastructure. You have kind of new age things. You know you mentioned CBDC to begin with, but a, a more nuanced approach is also to understand well even if we can identify the target that we would all like to see, how do we you know take incremental steps towards that target and hit certain thresholds on the way that bring in that network effect, that bring in the adoption, that harmonize some of these broader things. And that and 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 that's also a challenge. Um, on ISO 20022, I heard somebody just the other day say that it's a, it's an aptly named uh, standard because it has taken almost twenty years for some of these for, for to see adoption. I thought that that was uh, entertaining, but but again, I think it's an I think it's an incentive issue. The onus on adoption is is not there. The incentive alignment is problematic, and you mentioned yourself that a lot of the adoption actually happens just to be compliant and it's forced by regulation. Um, and, you know, as, as, uh, you know, wearing the hat of, of, uh, the innovation hub, I think, I think a more, uh, I think a probably a better approach is, is to incentivize institutions to move towards new standards, um, in a way that actually promotes their business model. And I think one thing that we don't talk about enough is what new commercial opportunities are there once we have, uh, a baseline that is innovation friendly. Um, so, so instead of thinking about, you know, thinking about it kind of in like a zero sum game, you know, our CBDC is going to, our CBDC is going to work. Are they not going to work? How to look at it as, as, a, as a gradual transition, understand the thresholds that, and where that tipping point is into new systems where you get the network effects and spend more time thinking about incentives. And then you get adoption almost for free. Um, so ISO 2022 is, is a great step forward, but I question its relevance uh, maybe once we start talking about other building blocks like new financial market infrastructures uh, and maybe CBDC more broadly when we, when we get to that topic as well.
1: John Falk um, has followed up. He says, I'm hearing from the panel, I think we're going to end up with multiple networks. Good old spaghetti. This introduces risk, both systemic and technical, are the smaller networks going to be up to meeting the requirements of being a critical financial market infrastructure? And I guess that's a reasonable question. Um, uh, you know, as the, as the industry fragments uh, and payments remain crucial to the functioning of of entire economies and indeed the global economy, there is a risk of um, things starting to fall apart. I don't know whether, yeah. wants, whether you want to comment on that, Daniel. I, I'm happy to. I'm happy to take the lead.
0: I'm sure my my fellow panelists have something to say as well. Uh, I mean, the fragmentation in the marketplace today is also incredibly uh, significant. Yet, you know, I think the majority of us would agree that under normal circumstances, it operates fairly well in most economies. So, if we put that as a benchmark in terms of fragmentation, I think we can absolutely do better than that. And I don't think that. Uh, I don't think that the world ahead of us is, is more fragmented than uh, the scenario that we're living in today. Um, so, so I think we're very much headed in the right direction, but it's again a balance, right? We want there to be diversity in payments. We want there to be diversity in assets. We want there to be choice to, to end customers yet we don't want that to lead to fragmentation and any of the any of the negative side effects. So I think uh, I think we, we need to balance it carefully. But I, I I don't see a problem as long as we're aware of fragmentation and networks and stranded assets uh, as we proceed uh,
1: towards the goal. Thanks, Daniel. Um, I'd like to talk about correspondent banking now, and I'd like to ask a very specific question about it. As I look at at the CPI, my building blocks number thirteen. Says, pursue interlinking of payment systems, i.e., decrease uh, dependence on correspondent banking. Number 17 says, consider the feasibility of new multilateral platforms and arrangements of cross border payments, i.e., further substitution of correspondent banking by these bilateral or multilateral uh, links. And it's pretty clear from my reading of these documents that correspondent banking, as presently construed, is seen as part of the problem. They've got very high capital costs. Uh, they've got relatively inefficient processes for establishing people's identities. We were talking about KVC AML a minute ago. Um, they have funding costs, uh, the liquidity problem, which, which Angus was, was talking about. Um, and of course, they've got very wide fat FX spreads, which they're collecting uh, as well, particularly in those less liquid currency pairs, which affect the remittance markets um, in particular. Um, now, there are solutions like Swift GPI, which, which Gottfried has, has brought up, which are helping those correspondent banks to become more efficient in managing those payments and actually get the processing times down and the transparency up and speed up and, and so on. But is, it, is there a sense here that the, uh, that the regulators actually wouldn't mind getting rid of, of correspondent banks altogether from, from cross-border payments in the long run? Angus.
3: Um, then got to uh, sure have some thoughts. Yeah. Um, I think there is a role to play for multiple parties in this landscape. Um, you know, in certain markets, I think it makes absolute sense to have correspondent uh, banking relationships. You know, there are more risky markets that... Frankly, um, you know, some of the larger markets do not would not want directly connected into um, their own, you know, into their own broader markets based on the fact that it could create financial financial stability risk issues, for example, for them directly. And they are probably quite comfortable that certain commercial banks take the risk and price in the risk associated uh, with those particular markets. but I come back to you know the point I made earlier, which is it's also about for um, for me it's about what is the purpose of what you're using a cross border payment for, um, and I think on that you know on that basis, what's really important there is you know again what's the the right solution for that. If the intention, say for a wholesale wholesale payments, is uh, to improve your liquidity. Uh, to reduce your cost, um, to improve your settlement risk by reducing down uh, settlement time, uh, time frames, and to increase your options to be able to link, you know, for example, delivery versus payment transactions with cross currency swaps uh, intraday, you, you know, the correspondent market doesn't suit that very well. Let's be let's be clear, and other solutions in the market um, are going to so. I'm not convinced that central banks necessarily want to remove correspondent relationships entirely from every single flow. I think it's around, you know, where does it make sense to remove them, um, for 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 what purpose?
1: Gottfried, what, what what's what's your thoughts on the on the usefulness of of the correspondent banking industry going forward?
2: Yeah, so I. I... First of all, what the central banks want with correspondent banking, you have to ask the regulators. I wouldn't know. Um, I I agree with Angus that it would be, uh, I agree with the general uh, gist, which is good for some, good for uh, not so good for other segments, but I disagree on the segments probably with him um i i i think at the low end we've already seen correspondent banking first of all i don't think it was ever there and much of the growth is happening on non-correspondent networks right western union transfer wise there's a whole host of players that serve that market basically by by acting as their own correspondent by having accounts in multiple countries but i wouldn't call them correspondent banks so i think there, at, at the low end uh you've seen a whole host of solutions the interesting question is the high end, and and maybe I, I wouldn't focus on the on the remote currencies. I would actually focus on the on the reserve to reserve currencies. Um, and to be honest, um, one of the key insights is that even the large banks, even the even the global transaction banks, many of those self-clear only in their own currency and rely on correspondent banks for all the other currencies. So. Um, even for reserve to reserve currency, when you get to the to the highly liquid flow at the top end of the market of course, on banking is very much the model. Um, and there, I think the regulators will be quite hesitant to let that go. Um, it gets it gets almost to the notion of of um, commercial bank money and the model behind it. We rely we rely on these banks that provide liquidity by using. By, uh, by using their money creation powers, at the end of the day, which also underpins their business model, uh, to be to be honest, um, and if you look at the regulators, I think they're they're very hesitant to get away from letting people clear that they don't have supervisory oversight over. Um, and and for that matter, I wanted to get back to to um, the omnibus account that the Bank of England has introduced that Angus was mentioning earlier. If you read the fine print. Um, uh, you'll see that the devil is in the detail um, and, and you'll see that they've restricted it to an enormous amount. One, they do not allow overnight positions in it unless you're a regulated bank by the Bank of England. Uh, second, uh, you can only be putting money in and out of it again if you're part of whatever they call the monetary supervisory framework, i.e. you're a UK regulated bank. Now, we can argue how this is going to work in practice, but you, you'll find that they are quite hesitant to let that go for Systemic risk, uh, monetary policy, there are a whole host of things where they, they sort of like having the correspondent banking model where they have only access to banks that they supervise, that they know meet their KYC requirements. There's a whole host of considerations there. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting one to dive into because that's a problem that's not going to go away if you tokenize it. It gets to the heart of, of how they run their reserves.
1: We'll have to talk about CBDCs in
2: just a second. Well, oh. it, it will come. That, that will be exactly <laughs> the same discussion. Who has access to the CBDC? Yeah. Well, you'll find that will be the crucial discussion. And I will tell you that unless they're cowboys, they will not allow any Dick, Tom, and Harry to have access to that CBDC. At least not for high amounts. Okay. Well, one of our and one
1: of our member of our audience has asked a question specifically about this, which which I'll I'll come to in a second. But uh, Daniel, I can see you want to say something. But but, anchor, perhaps I could just bring you in on on that point, which which Gottfried has just made about the regulators want to regulate. Big banks because it, it, it gives them a, a greater degree of assurance if you like and putting it somewhat crudely there, so what are the chances of um, of banks being displaced particularly on the retail side by i don 't know social media telecoms companies some of these fintech uh, startups simply because they they create a better user experience um, is there going to be a sort of halt on that due to central bank concern about
4: the stability of the system um, i I don't think so. They the banks gonna get displaced. I think there'll be a place for banks as well as these new um, whether people talk about fintechs or other providers. Um, one of the great examples is um how in African nations, um, MPESA, which is being run by, I think Vodafone has kind of given the access. It it runs, it, it basically has become one of the most powerful mechanisms of moving transfer moving payments or moving funds across across retail, especially because uh, a lot of these players, people in those countries are unbanked and for them to go and access those banking services, they do not have that cap- uh, capabilities or means to do that. Whereas, you know, the, the teleco providers in that case, you know, offering that M-Pesa route has given them the option. Similarly, if you go to some of the Asian countries, you know, you know, uh, India, for example, um, not everybody probably will have, I mean, some of the most unbanked people, uh, it's India is probably the third or the fourth level, if you look at the unbanked, but then, uh, you know, the, the likes of Paytm, the likes of Rupee have kind of given that ability for for, for, uh, for people to make the retail peer-to-peer payments. So I don't think so banks are going to get displaced, but I think uh, there'll be a lot of competition that that's why banks will have to probably innovate a lot more. They'll have to probably look at how they streamline use better technology. I still think um, a lot of the issues that we have been discussing can be resolved using blockchain and distribution, distributed ledger in terms of reducing the risk. And you know, uh, making transactions fairly quickly and and in time, um, and then also the banks will probably have to look at how they kind of work together, in terms of you know <laughs> giving a healthy competition to the private sector. Daniel, you wanted to say something, I think.
0: I wanted to I wanted to make a point about the correspondent banking model uh, stuff. There's there's a great BIS paper. I'll I'll, I'll do a shameless plug to it for a BIS paper called "The Retreat of Correspondent Banking." I think you know at a high level. Basically, what the paper shows is that when you look at the world map and you look at the number of correspondent banking relationships, they are decreasing. And when you look at the number of flows, the value of flows that are going through those relationships, they primarily are also decreasing. Um, and, and it's a largely a process of de-risking. And if you, and if you zoom out far enough, you realize that you know the course, cross-border correspondent banking model at the end of the day is a is a private sector, commercially motivated. Um, Business um, and the question for central banks is really: Is that okay? Is is that okay? Is that okay to rely on the private sector and uh, commercially commercial motivated incentives to connect currencies cross border? And th- that's an open question, and, and I don't have the answer. The answer may vary by region. Uh, you mentioned two building blocks. You mentioned building block 13, interlinking payment systems, and you mentioned another building block about 17, new FMIs yeah. mm-hmm. 17. I think I just wanted to emphasize that when you look at, for example, interlinking payment systems, one of the projects that's going on in the Innovation Hub is called Project Nexus, where mm-hmm. we're interlinking two different payment systems. And yesterday, I sat down with uh, Sukhmandu from uh, the MAS, and he was talking about interlinking between Prompt Pay and PayNow in Singapore and Thailand. And uh, he was talking about the process and he said it took three years to connect two faster payment systems. Now they're trying to connect to another one and their target is about six months. But the idea here of connecting faster payment systems, well, first of all, it's, it's a wonderful idea, but it actually, you know, we need, to, Project Nexus tries to tackle the problem of how to do them in a way that actually scales, but connecting faster payment systems doesn't relieve the clearing and settling underneath them. So actually correspondent banking correspondent banking models and interlinking payment systems are not at odds with each other at all. Okay, it is just a, a messaging layer when you think about interlinking payment systems. That is not the case for 17. 17 new system, new, uh, new FMI's that cut across borders. That indeed is, to some degree, at odds with correspondent banking, um, and um, may, maybe, maybe when you look at financial stability, for for good for good reason.
1: Just so, so I'm clear on this point, uh, uh, Daniel, that you can't disentangle hooking up retail instant payment systems you got from the RTGS systems because those payments have to be netted and then ultimately settled inside the RTGS system. That's, In other words, actually instant payment is an illusion. That's That's exactly <laughs> correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, We we should talk about CBDCs. We're into our last 15 minutes, and uh, our audience will be very disappointed if we don't. Uh, In fact, a member of our audience has said, does the panel see a world of CBDCs being used for FX? And if we take them to mean that, um, what role do they have to play in cross-border payments? Uh, We have seen with with Project Dunbar, they've developed these prototypes for a shared platform that allows banks to settle uh, cross-currency, cross-border transactions using CBDCs without Uh, correspondent banks Um, and they've done that by actually you know giving those non-resident banks access to CBDCs uh, enable them to to adhere to the local regulations in each case which have been some of the obstacles here Um, uh, so maybe project Dunbar is is a sort of future we're we're looking at and then in the securities industry we're seeing lots of uh, at least three projects have succeeded in using CBDCs to settle uh, securities transactions across border project Telvesha project Jura, and then this, uh, uh, this project run by Euroclear and the, and the Bank de France to settle um, tokenized French Treasury bonds. So we are seeing CBDCs used to settle the cash leg, uh, both of securities transactions and you know, currency versus, versus currency. So what, what is the answer to our audience members question, um, are CBDCs going to eventually dominate the world of cross-currency, cross-border payments? Angus.
3: Yeah. um, So there are obviously a lot of experiments that have been done in this space, um, as you you talked about. But I think there are still a number of obstacles associated with it. Um, The idea of a single platform, and I'm sure Daniel may have a different view, but the idea of a single platform that all central banks would effectively utilise is... To me, ultimately, something that I just don't think is going to fly, um, and the reason for that is it gives away control um, around and uh, supervisory powers, in essence, um, around the technology that embeds underneath the uh, you know the, the digital currency that would be issued. It's not a coincidence to me that Bank of England is driving its own RTGS renewal program, ECB's upgrading its target 2 program. If they seriously were thinking of a use, utilizing a single global uh, platform, I'd have to ask the, for digital currency, I'd have to ask the question, um, why is that investment happening in that, in that way? So that's uh, the one side. I think the governance piece that um, associates on top of that is, uh, is hugely important. You know, um, central banks have a mandate to, uh, to a, 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 Um, you know, to manage central bank currency, to manage currency policy. Um, Their mandate as well is to ensure financial stability um, and uh, other regulators in each jurisdiction to to cover uh, consumer protection. Um, Again, uh, one of those focuses within that is around resiliency um, and uh, thinking about using a single platform for that on a global basis is uh, it, it effectively introduces that sing- potential single point of failure, pro-cyclical risk uh, as well into the mix and all of those things. And uh, Godfrey mentioned as well, the whole access uh, question as well as to who can access that single platform and who can't. Um, so I, I think, you know, the Holy Grail, obviously that's what it looks like. You know, the reason why, for example, finality has gone down the route of individual local payment systems in each market is entirely because over the course of the years, those discussions have been had with central banks. And, you know, that model we've put in place is to, uh, is to address many of those, uh, those, those challenges um, associated.
1: And Angus, Miss it's a slightly unfair question, but I, I think I'm about to say, Finality began as a sort of stablecoin project, if you like. What's your What's your thought about stablecoins being used to complete cross border, cross currency
3: payments? Yeah. So, so, you so
1: sure it, stable coin one currency and swap right. it for coin so,
3: so, let me put to rest any misnomer that Finality is a stablecoin or has, and it, and it began. I said it began. Well, there, it no? began. It the utility so, utility
1: coin that wasn't. Yeah, there.
3: but but i think that the whole point about finality and the whole usp that's different compared with a stable coin is in essence we are simply on our payment system a digital representation of central bank dig, uh, central bank currency fiat currency the count that we hold it in is a count on trust uh trust account so in the event you have no risk against finality in the event that we were to go into resolution for example and that is a huge differential um, compared with a stable coin that is in some form or other pegged to a currency or a basket of of currencies um, you know there is not that counterparty uh, credit risk that that exists uh, around stable coin setup i think the other thing with stable coins is i think there's been a lot of conversation uh you know a lot of interest in stable coins but the the um the what's happened over the last few months has really opened people's eyes to a view that says, you know, a stable coin that's pegged to the dollar is not necessarily pegged to the dollar in the way people assumed it was pegged to the dollar Um, that introduces risk. And I think the reality is that stable coins, and we've already starting to see this are going to be regulated as payment systems or, under PFMI in one form or another, if they're going to have to be used in a in a uh, wholesale fashion across the industry, um, and therefore getting up and running with a coin before you're regulated, you know, again, we took the opposite approach, which was you know get regulated first. It's taken a lot longer to get get to market compared with where we we'd hoped for, but get regulated first because it's coming anyway. You may as well meet the highest standards um, required of a of a financial market infrastructure. Um, And ultimately for the banks and participants, utilizing um, an asset on a payment system that has the qualities of of fiat currency uh, is going to be far more uh, useful for them across a multitude of use cases.
0: Um, I'm I'm happy to to bounce back maybe some ideas against that. Um, I think one thing when we think about so a a common platform it's a little bit of a misnomer and uh, you know unfortunately we're working through the taxonomies of these systems so it's nice to see where the gaps are and how we can update them, but we need to remember remind ourselves that this common platform is a distributed common platform, and that's super super important so. Um, you know, when we think about, so we mentioned Project Dunbar, you mentioned Jura, and you mentioned Helvetia. There's also Project Enbridge uh, coming out of Hong Kong as well, which is very similar to Project Dunbar, a little bit of a different uh, participation arrangement. But what we're, what we're starting to see is if you can have a common settlement layer, right, if you can, if you can just ensure that settlement happens on the platform, then you can open up and, and just as thin layer of pots as possible as on a common platform, and then everything else modular modularized to jurisdictions and currency types. you know, there is a fighting chance that something like that can scale. Now, it's really interesting to think about how the scale is one common thing when you look at these platform arrangements, is you know, Jura and Helvetia, both with Switzerland and France, are, 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 there's only two jurisdictions on that platform, but then when you think of Dunbar and Embridge, we have four central banks and four jurisdictions, and four is kind of a sweet spot because you can you get the scale of kind of a multi a multi jurisdictional project, but you don't have to deal with governance and legal issues that are you know beyond uh, that kind of extend the extend out of the scope of what what is possible. So I think once we get a handle on what are the commonalities and how can we run a system. Uh, that works for four different jurisdictions. I think then we can start tackling the question of do these things converge uh, to a wider system that's adopted? Do they need to converge? or is maybe is there maybe kind of a sweet spot around certain economic zones that that can be the primary common system and then at some point these things can kind of roll up into another system that maybe looks at it from from a little bit of a higher level like central bank uh, central bank liquidity lines and, and things like that. To answer your question, maybe a little bit about, about the FX, uh, will CBDC have an impact on, on the FX quoting, FX, FX markets and, and things like that? I think, I think the answer is um, th- that it, it absolutely will. Um, and my, my hope is that we'll be able to start to see corridors in currency pairs uh, that don't exist today and maybe liquidity in those pairs and business models around that uh, that you know, s- simply haven't happened uh, to date because of the fundamental technology, really hasn't been there.
1: We're into our last four minutes, in fact, and I, I know, Gottfried, you've got to go promptly at three. So you've been asked a specific question by Henry Ration, and he says, uh, further to Gottfried's point, why do large banks still use rival banks for cash clearing outside their home market, even if they have their own office in, for example, New York or Tokyo? I know of one large bank where the CEO got cross. 20 years ago when he discovered his bank was using Bank of New York in New York to clear US dollars rather than using his own US operation. Is this a matter of capacity, liquidity, cost, et cetera? And uh, I think you do say somewhere in here, uh, it's like 15 banks ultimately intermediating uh, every cross-border payment because most banks are just doing local business and channeling it to uh, into this relatively small set. So what is, what's the answer to, to Henry's question? Why don't banks do more? Of their own business? It's a
2: good, it's a good question and I, I think you, you would have to ask the banks um, and one and I have asked the banks and you get a mixture of uh, liquidity is certainly a part their, their own subsidiary may not have as much liquidity as a Bank of New York will uh, have especially when it gets to dollars mm-hmm. since the dollar is so crucial for all these flows um, it only works if you have deep deep liquidity which your own subsidiary may not uh, may not have uh, sometimes it's history, sometimes it's reciprocal uh, arrangements where uh, other services are provided. On top of that, as part of the corresponding ba- relationships, such as documentary credit, you, there's a whole slew of services that are, that are often included. So I think it is a mixture of liquidity, um, uh, regulation and, and, and custom commercial considerations. I would want to pick up though on the, on the CBDC point for, uh, for foreign, ex- foreign exchange. Um, maybe two remarks, one about the central banks working together, I'm completely with anchors on that one. Um, I, I would also like to point out that we're moving into a world where it's not getting easier for central banks to move together, we're getting into a geopolitically fragmented world where there's deep suspicion, I think, between countries, and I can only name uh, the US versus China as an example, there is deep suspicion about uh, each other's CBDC uh, programs and how it's going to be used. So, for them to provide a common rails, mm, I'm, I'm not sure that's very likely. So, it may ha- it may happen within blocks. Um, and and the other part of my answer would be: I think the battle for CBDCs will not be fought in cross border. It will be fought in domestic markets. CBDCs will have to prove themselves domestically. They will have to to find use cases. And then, if they if they are used for those things, then I think they'll be used for forex, but the other way around seems a bit like the tail wagging wagging the dog, and and then it really boils down to CBDC. Are we talking about retail, wholesale? What are the restrictions around it, etc. So,
1: well, here's a good question: um, on CBDC, which major currency do you expect to do a full launch, not just a pilot first? Rather, big central banks always well, waiting for each other.
2: That's been answered, right? That's China. <laughs>
1: Mm, Is is Renminbi a a major currency? It's not even fully convertible yet. uh, The question is really about euro, sterling, US dollar. What are the major currency pairs? I mean, perhaps there is no sensible answer to that question.
2: Well, the, the Europeans have shown their hand. They've committed that they will do it. Mm-hmm. We can discuss about the modalities, the time frame, and all these things, but I think they have committed to launch one. Um, so I think, in, in
4: I think on on that, Godfrey, I think they have committed, but I still feel, and that's just my view, that you know, by the time it comes out, stablecoins might kind of be so far ahead that it'll be very difficult for a euro CBDC to kind of compete. I mean, we we we've just uh, heard and we've just seen. Circle, one of the leading providers of stablecoin, come up with the euro coin, which is regulated, which is pegged to the euro reserves. Um, and I think, I think personally, I think EU need EU, Europe needs to kind of you know speed up the game if they want to be ahead. Otherwise, and I, and then, and then just going back to that point around stable coins, I kind of agree with Angus that they need to be regulated, but I think I could see. Um, because CBDC is at a global level, it's a global interplay, plus a lot of these different countries are at different stages. Some are very much in the research phase of CBDCs. Some have actually launched it. Some have actually dismissed the idea that they don't want a CBDC. I believe it could actually turn out, and that's my personal view, that stable coins become, in place of CBDC, stablecoins take that chance and that and that space with the central banks kind of having a partnership. So they might regulate it. They might say, well, we have got this visibility and we are looking into how these stablecoin reserves are pegged and do they have that kind of liquidity? And then that they, they use that because that infrastructure is already available. They have proven the concept. And I feel that could be a, that could be something that we see in the future.
1: Well, we're we're running over time, but I'd like to, to address a couple of last questions from the audience. And do go if you need to, uh, Gottfried, but do stay if you can. The question's really... Uh, initially for you uh daniel which is what's the difference between a single common platform and swift here yes swift's a messaging layer but banks have opted to join a single platform that's more question and then miles Wright has also asked the question daniel will that single segment layer have uh mutualized losses so there's a couple of questions there about about the future you were describing this decentralized distributed uh common platform if you like
0: yeah. Um, so I think the analogy between uh, um, so, so sorry. So your first question is yes. What's, what's the difference in,
1: between Swift and, and what you were describing?
0: Well, Swift settlement. doesn't have doesn't have a settlement layer. Swift is is only a messaging layer. So I think that uh, making the analogy. But he's got all the
1: banks joining. Got the eleven thousand banks belonging to it. That's his point, really.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and that's fine. But 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 again, I think that a common messaging layer is very different than a common messaging clearing and settling layer. So maybe a uh, maybe a more uh, a more relevant analogy would be if you took Swift and CLS and merged them together, mm-hmm. um, and, and thought about okay. it a, li- a, little bit
1: more,
0: yeah. a little bit more like that. And, and uh, yeah, it, uh, good luck is right. It's not a, it's not a, it's, a, it's, a, it's no small feat. But then at the end of the day, when you think about the value proposition of CBDCs and of digital currencies, um, that th- that is what's that 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 is the vision, right? Um, so that so that's my answer to that. Then when you talk about kind of the the exposure and the settlement risk, um, mutualized losses. Yeah, will, will that single settlement layer mutualize losses? Well, the question the question is, would the, would the settlement layer and the operator of the settlement layer be a counterparty on the transaction and have uh, associated risk that it would carry with it? And again, I would make the analogy to CLS and say that it likely wouldn't the same way that CLS is a counterparty in the transaction either. Uh, So I think there there is a way of of creating a common settlement platform that can scale up to have the network effects of something like a SWIFT, at least from a a theoretical kind of onboarding perspective, uh, and not necessarily uh, have the central platform operator or, dare I say, the distributed group of platform operators um, incur any financial risk or or kind of counterparty risk at the same time. Mm
1: -hmm. OK, we, we need to stop in a minute, but shall we just wrap this up with just a, a, a final thought maybe from each of you on what this future is going to look like? I mean, I, I'm carrying away from this. Actually, the future is not going to be the rather neat vision which those four quantitative targets portray of a sort of um, a single corridor uh, in which 75 percent of payments are made within an hour. And we all get, up, get to see the, the costs and it's all very fast and efficient. It's actually in a much more complex Picture. Um, Am I right, Angus, am I right to think like that, that actually the future is difficult, fragmented, complex, messy? And how the hell do you regulate that to achieve these four goals?
3: Um, I I think we've all discussed it on here to say it. You cannot generalize down to four criteria for every single type of cross border payment flow. ultimately there are different solutions that are going to fit different uh, types of activity mm-hmm. and yes that's going to be uh, existing type of activity and it's going to be new type of activity that is um, still emerging um, and there'll be a whole host of things we haven't even thought of yet uh, that will come out of that too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is it messy? Yes, there's going to be, you know, there are those new solutions, there's new technology that's being applied that allows us to think about completely different ways of doing things compared with, you know, five, even five, 10 years ago. Um, And it's right that the industry explores those um, because there will be, uh, you know, there's going to be uh, efficiencies, cost benefits that come out from that, even if there may be in the, short term uh, there could be a potentially greater costs that allow us to get to where we need to i think the key is though there are standards that can be applied to uh, to make sure that within those new types of solutions there are still standards that make sense whether that be you know the discussion around aml uh, kyc that could be applied um, whether that be around ISO 2022, and there are also, I think people have to recognise there are red lines um, from a supervisory and regulatory perspective that those types of solutions uh, need to abide by and a recognition that if solutions are not, uh, you know, are not regulated, they're going to get regulated Um, And therefore, start thinking along those lines and meet the uh, look to get to the highest standards uh, in order for your business model uh, to work into the future.
1: Thanks. Thanks for staying. A a last word from you. You were very articulate at the outset about one size fits all isn't the answer here. You've got to distinguish between high value and low value. You've got to distinguish between business to consumer, consumer to business and so on. What's what's the future of payments? Is it going to be John Falk's Spaghetti Land that we live in forever? You're on mute, Gottfried.
2: Thank you. Yep, Rookie no, mistake. Um, the, um, the longer term, I don't know, but I think the medium term will indeed be messy. I think we're going through a Cambian explosion uh, with technologies. Lots of things still have to crystallize. Um, I, I'm not sure it's going to be spaghetti, but it will be fragmented with different solutions for different payments, um, and it will be messier than now. But I do think the key role here will be the regulators, um, and they will be the ones to watch because they hold a lot of the, lot of the responsibility and the powers to do something about it. Um, I, I do think you you if you put yourself in their shoes, we are messing with we're missing not just with payments, we're missing with money, which is one of the pillars of society. And if you get that wrong, we know what happens, right? We saw that in, in Germany in the twenties and we've seen that elsewhere. So they're keenly aware that they need to keep this thing going because if it if it goes wrong, it goes spectacularly wrong. Um, And they've been giving quite immense powers to to live up to those responsibilities. So that would be my my view. It's going to be messy, uh, but I would keep a close eye on the regulators, uh, and especially central banks.
1: Anchor, you've heard Gottfried say regulators are not natural risk takers. You hang out with the natural risk takers, the (laughs) entrepreneurs who want to design and build better systems. Is there a tension between what can be done and what the regulators are willing to allow to be done?
4: Um, Yeah, I think. I think I kind of agree that there's going to be um, in the future, as I see is that there's going to be a consolidation, Um, you know, every, uh, there's so many different technologies coming out, there's so many different ways to kind of achieve stuff. So you'll probably see a consolidation, some of these technologies will exist. And some of these technologies will probably get uh, to a point where there's no, no useful use case for that. Um, regulators will probably try. Regulators are already trying to kind of come into the, the crypto world and into the blockchain world and trying to kind of dip their feet in. So I think there's going to be enhanced regulation coming in. Um, as I said, uh, as I told about, uh, spoke about the stablecoin piece or some of the cryptocurrencies. Regulators will probably try and get more involved and more closer to that. So I th- I see that happening. And I think the the eventual one thing that I'll see is probably more more and more adoption. Is what I feel around the crypto and the blockchain as we move forward, um, and there will be a, a I think there will be a place where both fiat and crypto exist hand in hand, and some of the some of the big players. I mean, you you talk about J.P. Morgan, City Credit Suisse, uh, The moment these guys start adopting crypto mainstream, which which I believe will happen, um, we'll get even more messier before it gets better. Uh,
1: Daniel, a last word from you. Um, I, I was thinking listening to you earlier that, you know, you sit down in July 2020, you read the 19 building blocks, you think, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, that, that's a vision of the future, which we can all subscribe to. But as soon as people start to get into the uh, trying to implement those 19 building blocks, it suddenly starts to seem a lot less simple than that. And that's why we ended up with this proliferation of of working groups and reviews and technical advice uh, uh, and all the rest of it. Yeah, you've described a, a, a very clear vision of what you think the future will look like, that, that decentralised um, network of networks if if you like, but that itself is going to require considerable cooperation and 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 collaboration. Um, how hopeful can we be given the difficulty we've had with the 19 building blocks so far uh, of achieving your vision in a in a reasonable timetable but which i mean maybe not the the five years from now, but maybe 10 years from now.
0: I think it's hard to speculate on, on dates, but I think the, the, the direction of travel is uh, is definitely there and the momentum is definitely there. Um, I think the, the BIS and the BIS Innovation Hub are playing a, a significant role in, in driving this forward. Um, I would urge not to think of private versus public sector at odds with each other in, in any sense. I think any significant accomplishments are done uh, with public sector backing through private sector capacity uh, with, with, of course, proper regulatory oversight. Uh, and, and the regulatory oversight is incredibly important for, for public trust, not just when things are functioning, but most importantly, uh, when things are not functioning. Uh, and I think if, if the markets today show us anything, uh, they show us how important uh, that is. Um, so I think the direction of travel is absolutely there. Again, I would I would focus on incentives Um, there are many moving parts and ultimately it's the incentives of the different jurisdictions and the different private sector players within these jurisdictions. uh, To move our models forward and how we do business with each other, how we cooperate with each other and how we connect. Uh, different currencies and different economies um, together. So, so I, I'm I'm incredibly optimistic um, about the future, um, and I think you know we can we can benchmark on today and see that we are um, making significant progress. Um, and the competition is, is is the competition and the diversity of players in the space is is absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, the title of this, of this event was, you know, has has uh, has cross-border payments lost its mojo? I, I just wanted to kind of circle back to that. Mm-hmm. You know, in a way, it, it serves me very well that CBDC and cross-border payments is is very sexy and 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 topical. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I yearn. I think we will know when we have reached some form of of uh, completion when it becomes less interesting uh, to talk about because it just works. Uh, and I think that that's uh, that that that's where where we we are heading. I see here less people talking about blockchain and DLT and things like that because people generally understand that there's a direction of travel, maybe not towards, Blockchain in particular, but in terms of distributed systems in general, I think as we think more about crypto and stable coins and CBDC and all of these things, there's less of a question mark of is this feasible, because we understand that this is this is the direction of travel. So, uh, you know, maybe it's a maybe it's a good thing when uh, when uh, it loses its mojo, because it actually will be working.
1: When looking forward to a future which payments are boring again, uh, that's probably a great note um, on which to end. Uh, because I think we must stop now. We've we've run over by more than 10 minutes. So I'd like to thank our panelists, uh Daniel Eden from the, from BIS, Angus Fletcher from Finality, um, Anka Sharma from BCB group, and of course Gottfried uh as himself. He's sadly had to, to go as we knew. But um, I'm grateful to all of them. I'm grateful also to you, our audience, for all the questions that you have asked and comments which you've made, which we uh, have been very helpful to the discussion. For now, it's goodbye from the uh Five or four of us. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. you. Thanks, everybody. Bye bye.